We read earlier 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. If you have your Bible, would you turn back to that passage? And I'll read again verses 10 and 11. Though we're focusing on verse 11, but we will have occasion to mention some of the things that are there in verse 10. Verse 10 reads, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Becoming a Christian is the greatest thing that can ever happen in a person's life. It happens in many different ways. No two people are drawn to Christ in the same way. But it's something, it happens something like this. You hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear the invitations. You hear the promises. You hear the plead, pleading of God to come to his son, Jesus Christ. You hear of Jesus Christ and you hear of his death upon the cross. That he died there to atone for our sins. And that he rose again for our justification. And as you begin to hear about Jesus Christ, you realize that back behind Jesus Christ's work on the cross and his rising from the dead, there is the love of God, the eternal, unchanging love of God. You discover the immeasurable greatness of God's love. But you may have been drawn in different ways, yes. Some of you will have been more conscious of your great need, dissatisfied in your soul, hungry and thirsty for something more than you had at that present time. You began to seek God. You began to call upon him. And then you began to turn in faith to Christ and turn from your sins forsaking your wicked ways turning to God in repentance and faith you took of the water of life in Jesus Christ freely you drank from that fountain and your thirst was quenched you have everlasting life and a joy that passes knowledge and understanding if you are a real Christian, then those things never leave you. They become a permanent part, a permanent part of the reality of living the Christian life. But you see, a great change has taken place. When a person becomes a Christian, it is a great change. And it takes the rest of your life to realize really the dimensions of that change that have taken place. And you stand back in ever-increasing awe and wonder, joy and thankfulness to God. 
And part of that great change, fundamentally, that great change is you see yourself in an entirely different light. Because you've begun to see God in an entirely different light. You've seen God in his holiness and in his justice, as well as in his love. And you've seen yourself as a sinner. And you see yourself as justly condemned by this holy God. And part of that change in your life as a new Christian and as an ongoing Christian is what Paul here describes as a a godly grief, a godly grief, a godly sorrow, a sorrow for sin. And on the other side, a love, an increasing love for God and for righteousness and for holiness. And the Christian life is not just an act simply of faith at the beginning and a repentance at the beginning. It's an ongoing faith. It's an ongoing, continued repentance, an ongoing godly sorrow. And Paul here in verse 11 of chapter 7 is describing for us some of the fruits, some of the evidences of that true repentance that flows from godly sorrow. It's a repentance, he says, that leads to salvation in verse 10. He says in verse 11, you sorrowed, you Corinthians sorrowed in a godly manner. And there are at least half a dozen fruits, which by the end of this sermon we'll have looked at in some detail. Those fruits are characteristic of every Christian in every age. We're looking at the Corinthians in particular, but they are not unique. Whatever sins break out in our lives, and sin does break out in our lives, and in the lives of of the church of Jesus Christ, whatever happens, whatever sins, then godly sorrow should soon follow. It must be there for our repentance to be real and genuine. Now, the Apostle Paul talks about two kinds of sorrow in this chapter. There is, first of all, a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow. Now, you well know that if you... I'm not sure how many of you have a diamond, but if you have a diamond or you go past a jeweler's shop, the diamond will be set against a background that will enhance... The diamond will show off its, the way it's been cut and its beauty, usually a black background. And uh, that enhances the diamond. Well, if we're to understand the godly sorrow that works salvation, we need to see there is another kind of sorrow, a worldly kind of sorrow and grief. And then we will be able to see the difference and ensure that we are those who possess a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So what is this worldly grief? He describes it briefly in verse 10. He says there is a, there is a godly sorrow that produces repentance and salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Repentance is unto life. This sorrow is unto death. It's the complete opposite. So what is he talking about here? 
Well, you remember that our Lord Jesus Christ taught us in the parable of the sower. That the the seed falls on different grounds. Not everybody who professes to become a Christian actually lasts. And you will see quite clearly they do not bring forth the fruits of repentance. For example, there is the seed that fell upon the stony ground. It was short-lived. The people who are represented as the stony ground are those who hear the word of God. They receive it with gladness, but they don't last. They don't last. There's no root. Tribulation comes and they fall away. And then there's the seed that fell among the thorns. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things chokes the word. It proves to be unfruitful. There are no fruits of repentance there to be seen. And it's possible, you see, even to be sitting in this congregation this morning. And you're aware of your sin. You feel something of your guilt. Over the years, many people said to me, I'm not coming here anymore. All you do is make me feel guilty. To which I always reply, good, that's what it's intended to do if you're not a Christian. But, you see, you may still be bothered by your guilt, unhappy with your sin, regretting the consequences, the unhappiness that it brings. You realize that sin is not a good thing, but you're not doing anything about it except turning it in on yourself and regretting the fact that it is making life miserable for you. And that is not a godly grief. That is not a godly grief. Why? Because there's no real repentance. See, other people still flatly refuse to acknowledge guilt, yet they feel a sense of shame, and they can't handle it. They can't get rid of it. It sticks. But again, you see, there's no real repentance. The worldly sorrow that leads to death is a sorrow that really turns in on The person who is the sinful person who doesn't deal rightly with their sinfulness. They don't like sin because it messes up their lives. But there's no thought of God. There's no thought of the holiness of God. They're self-centered. Let me give you a couple of examples so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There are two men in the Old Testament. One was Esau, and the other one was King Saul. Esau, remember his brother? He was a bit of a schemer, but let's stick with Esau. He was deeply distressed. For a morsel of food, he had sold his birthright to his brother, Jacob. He was desperate to inherit the inheritance, the blessing that he had rejected and despised. Yet he was a sad man, really distressed. Why? Because he found no place for repentance. But he sought it diligently with tears. That's the extent to which he was affected. He wept, but he found no true repentance. And Saul was another example. He even confessed on one occasion his sin to Samuel. I, I listened to the people. 
I didn't do what you said, but I listened to the people. I did what they did. I was afraid of them. And Samuel said to him, you rejected the word of the Lord, Saul. And the Lord has rejected you. And then later on, he went and sought out a medium. Very sad saga in the book of Kings. And he was in extreme sorrow and distress when he heard the words of Samuel. It was great fear. He was trembling from head to foot because of his sin. But it was a god, an ungodly sorrow, a worldly grief. And Paul says plainly that such sorrow is not to life. Repentance is unto life, but this is not a repentance. This is a sorrow that leads to death. Why? Because it centers upon the person who is the sinner. It's self-centered. And there's no way out. So the guilt, the shame, you try and scrub it out, you try and remove it, you try and forget it, you try and banish it, it won't go. It won't go. And what does it do? It brings you down to death. Because there's no hope of everlasting life in that kind of sorrow. It produces death. And let's reflect for a moment soberly. It's a foretaste of the sorrows of hell. Hell is real. And this is a foretaste. This worldly grief is a foretaste of the sorrows of hell. How did the Lord Jesus Christ portray hell? Can you remember? A place of weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. A place of outer darkness. That's the sorrow of death. That's the sorrows of hell. That's the sorrows of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who has not truly repented of their sins and found peace with God. And Paul recognises there is that worldly sorrow. So before we move on, let me ask you, each one this morning, have you reached that point where you've seen your personal need of a saviour? And that saviour is Jesus Christ. Worldly sorrow will never lead you to Christ. It will only lead you to bury yourself in your sin and sorrow and self-pity and woe is me, that kind of mentality. But you need Christ. You need him to wash away the guilt of your sin. And he is the only one who can deal with your sin. He is the only one who can give you everlasting life. He is the only one who can deliver you from sin. You see, this serves as a warning. Paul doesn't glance over it. It's there at the end of verse 10. There is a sorrow of the world that produces death. And you should be asking yourself then, well, is my repentance then real? Is it real? So let's move on to consider, secondly, this godly sorrow that leads to salvation. This godly sorrow that leads to salvation. What a difference to sorrow in a godly manner. Literally, to translate it, it would be sorrow or grief according to God. According to God. And immediately you see you're taken out of yourself and your focus is upon God. 
is sin seen in the light of God. It's the sinner who sees himself now before this holy God. What a contrast to Esau and Saul. They were locked in on themselves. They could not look out look out to God and find mercy. But you see, these Corinthians have reached a point where they had a profound awareness of God, a true repentance that had a very real sense of God and his holiness and his glory. They'd seen sin for what it was, that it's against God fundamentally. It's not just something that makes you unhappy and messes up your life. It does. But the essence of sin is it's against God. And that is what these Corinthians had now grasped. That is why David in Psalm 51 that we sang at the very beginning cries out, Have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. David is before God. Esau and Saul never got there. But David is before God calling upon him. He says later on in that Psalm 51 that my sin is always before you, against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now you see, there is a sorrow that leads to repentance, a sorrow that has grasped a hold of the fact that God is merciful, God is kind, that there is forgiveness with this God. No confession ever fell from the lips of Esau and Saul, but it fell from the lips of David. And it it fell, although it's not recorded in as many words, it would have fallen from the lips of these Corinthians. And you see the fruits of it then in verse 11. And this was the whole church. We're not just dealing with an odd individual in the Corinthian church here. We're dealing with the entire church. This was a church issue. As a body of Christ, they had failed to deal with the sin that was present among them. They turned a deaf ear to it and a blind eye and they let it go on. That's why Paul had written to them. He regarded them as a church of Christ but because they lived in a city like Corinth. It was full of immorality. And these people had just turned a deaf ear and were doing nothing at all. But by the time Titus came back from Corinth to the Apostle, a great change had taken place. I would love to have seen the face of the Apostle Paul. All his distress, all his anxiety, all his prayers answered in a moment when Titus returned and brought the message about the turnaround, the complete turnaround in the Corinthians. He is exuberant. He expresses his joy when he sees and hears about the genuine fruits of repentance. So what are they? What does this sorrow according to God produce? What is the evidence of true repentance? Not only just for the sin of the Corinthians, but for any sin as Christians you might commit. Firstly, he says in verse 11, what diligence it produced in you. What diligence, what eagerness, what 
carefulness, a real sincere desire to deal with sin and to please God. Before you were indifferent, you were blasé. You allowed this grievance sin to go on unchecked. You didn't think it was important. But what a change now. Complete reversal. No longer neglecting it. No longer pretending it's not there. But a complete turnaround in their attitude towards sin. What eagerness. And then closely linked to that, we find what clearing of yourselves. That is, a defence you make against an accusation. You're not excusing yourselves anymore. You're not resorting to justifying yourselves. You're not trying to explain things away anymore. Rather, there is a godly grief that works repentance, an honesty that faces sin, owns up to sin, calls a spade a spade, and doesn't choke when it acknowledges sin. A free confession of sin. You cleared yourselves. You acknowledged it. And more even so than that, he said, what vehement, uh, sorry, what, what indignation, what indignation. This deep concern gripped them in such a way that they now were indignant. They were angry with themselves and with their sin and the consequences of that sin. They realized what had taken place. They brought shame on the church. They brought shame upon Christ. They brought agony to the Apostle Paul. I mean, remember, he had planted this church in Corinth. He knew them. They were dear to him. And they brought agony and distress. That's why he says in verse 2, open your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. That was the accusation of the Corinthians against the apostle. You see how drastic then the change was. Now there is displeasure. Now there is righteous indignation and anger because their sin has been shown up. They've realized that it's against God. They realize what they've done to the apostle Paul. They realize what has happened to the church and they can no longer sit there and do nothing about it. Christ has been set before them, the one who was wounded for their transgressions, bruised for their iniquities, their sin, their sin. And now they are rising up in indignation, in horror and anger against sin and against themselves because they were the ones who were the guilty party. But now they had repented and here is the evidence of their repentance and eagerness. A clearing of themselves and a holy indignation. And I would suggest to you that that indignation was now driven by a love for God. Repentance flows from an understanding of the mercy of God and the love of God. They longed for purity. They longed for integrity. They'd allowed sin to go unchecked for too long. And God's name and honor had been dragged into the dust but no longer, Paul says, well, what a, what a change has taken place in your hearts and lives. And then there's a fourth, fruit. What fear. 
What fear? There it is in the middle of verse 11. Now, some would say that they were afraid of Paul coming in person and showing his displeasure towards them. Well, that may have been true, but I would suggest to you that it is more than just a fear of a man. This is rooted in the fear of God. What does it mean to fear God? Well, the Old Testament helps us a lot here. Job and Solomon. Job and Solomon teach us. Job 28, 28, the fear to fear the Lord is wisdom. To depart from evil is understanding. Solomon in Proverbs 1 and verse 7, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. These men and women in Corinth feared God and it turned them away, right away, the opposite direction, away from sin. Can you see then why Paul, if I use the phrase, over the moon, he's delighted, he is rejoicing. It's almost a sense of he doesn't know what to do with himself because of the great change that has taken place in, this, in, the, in these Corinthians. They are full of new purpose, new endeavours, new desires after obedience. Here are the saints of God dealing faithfully with sin. What do you do if sin is pointed out to you? Perhaps it's pointed out to you in the public ministry of the word of God. What do you do? Stick your fingers in your ears? Pretend it's not there? Resist it? How are you going to prosper? The Corinthians didn't prosper. How will you bring joy to those who are over you in the Lord if you continue in sin? Known sin. Sin has been pointed out to you. Perhaps personally, perhaps privately, perhaps publicly. It's all too easy to listen to a sermon and to go away unchanged and unmoved. The purpose of the preaching of the word of God is to change us, to change our lives, to bring us more and more into conformity to the will of God and the image of Christ. And that means you put away sin. You die to sin more and more. You forsake it. You repent. And only good will come from that. Only good. But let's move on. There are three others. I've put the next, the fifth and the sixth together because they are very similar. He says, what fear, what vehement desire and what zeal. Vehement, that's a word that means strong strong desire a zeal true repentance for sin shows itself in determination a strong longing to please God there's a holy intolerance of sin that's what repentance means a holy intolerance of sin you begin to hate it more and more and more not simply because of the damage it does to you and the way it messes up your life but the damage it does to the church of Christ the damage it does to the glory of God it is against God and fundamentally if you are a true Christian you want to please God well you can't please him if you go on in sin and you don't check it 
and deal faithfully with it. And I would suggest then that this zeal and this strong desire shows itself in a burning desire to be reunited with anyone that you've sinned against. These people wanted to be reunited with the apostle. They are deeply offended. They've made some very serious false accusations against him. As far as they were concerned, he'd wronged them. And he wasn't a very good apostle. They were quite prepared to listen to false apostles who derided the apostle Paul. But now they wanted to be reunited to the apostle. He brought the gospel to them. He was dearly loved. And yet they'd offended him. But they wanted to be reconciled now. You know, it's, it's, it's a matter of peacemaking. That's what repentance leads to. Not just dealing with your sin before God, but its effects upon those around you where you've sinned. And then lastly, it says he, it leads to a, a vindication. What vindication? Vengeance, punishment, that's literally what it means. Now, that does not mean, of course, that if someone sinned against you, you take revenge on them. That is not what is meant at all. That would only add to your sin. wouldn't solve anything. You don't pay back evil with evil. The Apostle Paul is quite clear about that. No, it's a desire to see justice done. This guilty man in the Corinthian congregation had been brought under discipline. And it appears from what we read in 2 Corinthians in chapter 2 that he was truly repentant. You see, they had done what they ought to have done and needed to do. They dealt with the sin. They called the man to repentance. And that is what he ultimately did. That was a desire to see justice done. And on a personal level, it means that when we sin, we have to accept the consequences of our sin and put it right, whether it be with our wife, with our children, other family members, pastor, whoever it is, you need to put it right. That's what we find here. These are the fruits of that repentance, that godly sorrow that leads to salvation. And you can see the logic of it. You can feel the logic of it, can't you? Here is a holy God. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to atone for our sin, to remove our guilt. And then we do, we fold our arms and harden ourselves and say, I'm not going to do anything about my sin. That's an utter contradiction, isn't it? An utter contradiction. Now, sometimes because of who we are and the nature we are, and like the Corinthians, 
The first time we hear about this sin, whatever it is, we don't do anything about it. We're not even willing to recognise it. We ignore it. We're all like that. We shouldn't be surprised. These Corinthians didn't repent overnight. It took a stirring letter from the Apostle Paul. It took time. And sometimes repentance for our sins takes time. But we have to face it. So we need to ask ourselves finally this morning and consider before God, is my repentance then real? Are these fruits evident in my life? We've seen there are two kinds of sorrow and the acid test as to which sorrow characterizes us is, I put it in a question, what troubles you most? about your sins and your failings and your shortcomings. What troubles you most? Is it that it messes your life up or is it that it's against God and against Christ? That's, if you take nothing else away this morning, take that home with you. Is my sin a pain to me and a trouble to me because of the way it messes up my life or is it because I've offended a holy God and a Christ who died in the place, my place, as a sinner. You see, a man or a woman who has a, an ungodly, a worldly sorrow, they can feel guilty. They often feel guilty. If you are a Christian, you say, well, I feel guilty too when I sin. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is, you see, the, the person with ungodly sorrow that leads to death never turns to Christ. Never. Never turns. But if you turn to Christ, then that is the fundamental difference. You've offended God, and here is one who has been condemned in your place by dying on the cross to atone for your sins. And if you have then confessed your sins and repented, then you will find you have a desire and it's a delight to you to please God. You've grasped a hold of the fact that there is mercy with God, there is pardon, there is peace with God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you want to go on to serve him, and to love him and to obey him. But now you may say, oh, but I have failed. I have failed. I feel guilty. I have sinned. I've not been consistent. The Christian life is a struggle. It's a fight. Remember, David did not repent of his sin immediately. You know the story in Psalm 32 he just felt as he was living in a permanent drought. You know what it's been like in this intense heat we've had. You know, you, you have to drink, don't you? And as if David had sinned as if he'd never drunk. he never drunk of the mercy of God. And for months, he was in a terrible state. And then Nathan pointed the finger at him. And he confessed and he found mercy. Matthew Henry says something very helpful about the Corinthians. They were not innocent, but they were penitent. 
They were not innocent, but they were penitent. Eventually they came to their senses. They were brought up short and they repented of their sins. And Paul's sorrow was turned to joy. And their sorrow, he had made them sorrowful, deliberately was turned to joy. And this was the evidence of it that we've seen here, these fruits of repentance. At the same time, there are different degrees of repentance. The mature fruit of repentance is not required for salvation. And that's a comfort to us. When can we say I've repented enough? When can we say our repentance is pure? One of the old purities is saying, even our repentance needs to be repented of. Well, what do we do? Throw up our hands then in despair? No, 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 no. When God works in the heart and makes someone one of his own children, he puts in there a seed. And that seed is a hatred for sin and a love for God. And the longer you live as a Christian, the more you will hate sin and the more you will love God. You see, the seed or the sapling of a fruit tree, it has the same DNA as a mature fruit. And that's true of a Christian. See, if you become a Christian, then God has put that seed in your heart, a hatred for sin and a love for God. And that will grow. That will grow and increase. The seed will become a sapling and the sapling will become a mature tree that bears these kinds of fruits more and more. That's God's work. That's an encouragement. That's a comfort to us. We look upon our sin and it brings us sorrow and sadness. But then we must not wallow in our sin. We need to look away to Christ. We need to look away to God and realize he's done a work of grace in our hearts and the Christ did not die on the cross then in vain he died to set you free he died to make you good to hate sin and to love him and to be conformed more and more to his image but at the same time you cannot make repentance the ground of your salvation don't fall into that trap Faith didn't die on the cross for you. Repentance didn't die on the cross for you. Christ did. Christ did. But when the cross dies for sinners, he works faith in them. He works repentance in them. And these are the kinds of fruits that he shows. My final word is to someone here this morning, perhaps, who's still struggling with their guilt, has not come to Christ, let me say to you one, one thing, only one thing more. Don't try and run away from your guilt and get rid of it in some way or other. It won't work. Don't run from your guilt. Run with your guilt to Jesus Christ. And cry to him for mercy. And wonder of wonders, you will find mercy in Christ. You will find mercy. As a teenager, 15 or 16 years of age, I didn't know very much, but I knew I was a sinner. 
I knew that Christ died for sinners. And I cast myself upon him. And since that day I've sought to serve him. And I'm here now telling you, go to that Christ. He's a great saviour. Amen.